Imagine if there was a school where kids rushed in as fast as they rushed out. Imagine if there was a school where every student was set up to succeed. Imagine if there was a school where you could truly express who you are. Imagine if there was a school where students' voices, big and small, are heard alongside educators' voices, working together. Imagine if there was a school where we listen actively and challenge each other's ideas to help them grow. Imagine if there was a school where you were not limited by boundaries. Welcome to Village Stories, where we share our ideas for mind-bending and soul-stretching as we raise the bar for learning and teaching in all Australian schools. Welcome to Village Stories. My name is Luke Harris and I'll be your host for this brand new podcast series. Linfield Learning Village is a school of the future, tucked away in Sydney's North Shore. LLV, as it's known, is a school that breaks stereotypes and is forging new educational pathways to inspire and equip our community members to be a positive change in our world. Today on Village Stories, we talk to the founding members of this school, the executive team who have helped build a school from scratch. We have Linfield Learning Village Principal Stephanie McConnell, Deputy Principal Secondary Mark Burgess, and Deputy Principal Primary Lou Deby as our first guests talking about how they are raising educational standards and breaking new ground in Australian education. Steph, we might start with you. You're the principal of Linfield Learning Village, a brand new school labelled as a school of the future in its business case. What was the imagine if moment that made you interested in applying for the job of principal uh, at what is now Linfield Learning Village and starting a school from scratch? Well, it's exactly that, isn't it? I think any teacher's dream would be to start a school from scratch. And I think the imagine if moment comes from a place where we're all looking for something better for our young people. And we know a system from our own experience and possibly from having children in it ourselves that um, doesn't necessarily meet the needs of every child. And I think the real Imagine If for me is that dream of being able to completely change the system, change the experience for children in this century so that it is one that um, embraces each individual, that has a focus on their well-being and that engages them in a passion for learning, that, that we don't lose that. Um, at such a young age where, where school just becomes a, a rote thing that they have to do. It's, it's sort of that imagine if school could be something that a child bounced out of bed and couldn't wait to get to and loved every, every part of the learning experience. If I jump in there, I think um, for me it was all of those things, but also imagine if we could actually do what we've been talking about for the last 20 years. Mm. Because I think this conversation is not a new conversation. We've been talking about an ed revolution for a long, long time, Mm. but the opportunity to actually do it and have a clean slate to do that from um, is a sort of once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I think. It is, yeah. 
And Lou, it's interesting you say that because 2006, when I finished university, I still, uh, when I started, sorry, my very first session at university, I remember the lecturer saying, high stakes is not the way to assess. (laughs) And here we are almost uh, 20 years later and there's still, still high stakes. So it's interesting that, as you said, Lou, we've been having that conversation for a long time. Uh, and yet, it's still happening. It's still happening. Oh, because I think, you know, the, the imagine if we were brave enough has to be put out there because mm. um, I think the, the stagnation happens because we don't know what to do instead of what we've already done. So we keep doing what we've already done and just try and do that better. Um, but the problem is if what we've already done is wrong doing it right it doesn't make it right so um, essentially I think because it takes such bravery to step into a space where we don't know or don't have all the answers yet um, it's imagine if we were brave enough to just act on what we do know which is you know that the science has been telling us for a long time that high high stakes testing um, you know, high stakes education in general isn't working for a vast majority of our children and you can see that evidenced in the really sad figures around um, increased anxiety and suicide around those high stakes tests that we have in Australia um, and yet we, because nobody had a silver bullet to replace all of that old stuff with people just got stuck um, so I think you know the imagine if we were brave enough to say we know what we're doing isn't good enough. We don't have all the answers, but we're going to go after them anyway. And Mark, what are your thoughts on that? I just saw an opportunity to be completely creative around schools with the purpose of making life, making every day better, actually, for young people. Quite simple. And, and having stepped into the role, you found you've had that opportunity? Absolutely. So within the complexity that is young people finding their way, uh, breaking things, uh, making mistakes, uh, I guess we've created an opportunity where that can happen with, with the opportunity to learn from your mistakes and approach the next day better. So many things go wrong in a school. And I guess from my perspective, I'm at the end of often fielding a parent complaint about incredibly difficult bullying or you know an appalling language but kids don't see that kids are just exploring and finding their way and they have a completely different mindset when it comes to the impact of really bad language or um, or even physical play fighting that happens Uh, so obviously we respond to all of that appropriately but we also give kids a moment of pause to grow and learn from it and to have a healthier perspective on themselves and life. So I, I guess that requires a patient, creative approach, but that's what we're building. Was there a moment where you felt it's time to be brave, where you thought enough is enough, we need to take that step and, and I'm ready to take it? Yeah, like, I guess on a personal level, um, you look at your trajectory. So i am just hit my 30-something year of teaching um and it's a bit of a now or never moment and I guess you know you in your I think teachers are driven um motivated 
by really intrinsic um, beliefs around what teaching and learning should look like. Um, so if your personal philosophy and your belief system that's driven you for 30-odd years aligns with knowing that we could be doing something better, then you've just got to do it. It's a shut-up-or-put-up moment, right? Like, it's you can't... If you're going to say it's not good enough and not do anything to change it, then you have to just actually shut up. Um, and I wasn't prepared to shut up, so I had to do something about it. Yeah, and I think from from my experience, if you are brave enough to take that first step, you find that others want to follow because, um, as Lou said, so many educators know that there are better ways to do things. They they just don't feel that um, that they can step out as an individual and take those first steps. It might happen within individual classrooms, and it does in so many places. Um, however, it's the system change that is the real challenge, and it's it's like steering an ocean liner. It doesn't turn on a pinhead. Um, and But it, it's got to be a, a brave and consistent shift in a new direction that completely changes that system that exists. And that's the hardest part because, as Lou also suggested, we're not trying to fix a broken system. The system itself wants to maintain itself. And that's one of the greatest challenges, I think, for us in this mm. space is that the system works against us um, in so many uh, really ways that are not necessarily obvious. Um, and, and for no fault of anybody but the fact that it is. Yeah, I, and I think it's... Nobody knows anything no, different. and it's the evolution of education, isn't it? So even you think right now there's a conversation about changing the hours of schooling. Now, we've known for a long time that schooling hours don't really fit the learner, but there are so many other economic factors that surround the decision to make school go from nine till three. Um, and, you know, you can look at the evidence of that right now. Schools are open because we're required to be open so that the economy can be sustained. So um, all of that other extrinsic factoring that stops us from making decisions in schools which we know would be right that's not easy to change and it's not usually within the power of a teacher to change that um, so I think it is the systemic change that is the big challenge and like Steph said you need a tribe um, you need your people you need a host of believers um, to prevent us from slipping backwards when things get tough so I think there's the bravery, but then there's, imagine if we had the resilience to continue to pursue, um, you know, to go after that child that is unreachable because you can't help but keep going after them. You're going to pursue them in a way that um, drives you forward even when you don't know what's next or you don't know what's around the corner. And I guess we're trying to do that for, you know, a whole village of children right now. Um, yeah. and it's contrary to human nature in so many ways because we like predictability we like the norm we like particularly in an environment where we're in a classroom with you know 30 plus children often and, and other educators in the space in our village um, we like to know what's coming next and there is this this lovely tension <laughs> that, that we want to try and encourage people to sit in 
whereby you do have rituals and routines and you do have things that allow predictability to your day, but the overall drive behind what we are doing and what we are doing differently is that we've got to keep pushing beyond that comfort space. We've got to be pushing outside of our, what I call our default positions that we fall to, that are often around control for a teacher, that are often um, around, you know, the known, the predictable, um, and and to, to, again, be, be pushing into that space beyond um, the, the, the comfortable space that we all like to sit in um, on a daily basis. I think there's... Um Vulnerability. So if we want to pull out another imagine if, you know, imagine if we were truly vulnerable. Um, and that is about sitting in that space that Steph's describing. Um, but it's also about empathising with our students because I think we, as educators, ask them to be vulnerable every single day. Um, and if we're not prepared to be vulnerable ourselves, that's a problem. Um, so I think that... Um, a lot of fear had to be stripped away in order for our team here to really move forward. Um, some of that fear might be authentic, but a lot of it, I think, was urban myth <laughs> um, built up over years. Um, so I think there's been a lot of stripping back of that fear. Um, and, I, and I think the other piece of that is as an educator, you go into a classroom with your whole self. And it is who you are. It's not just what you do. Um, so it's very difficult to separate yourself as a human being from your role as an educator. Um, so I think that is an extra layer of vulnerability and bravery required to um, accept feedback that says, actually, you could be doing it better than that or you could be doing it differently to the way you're doing it without you taking it personally and... Um, feeling like it's some kind of criticism of who you are as a person. So I think it's complex, I guess is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. isn't it? Um, I guess to jump into the next part, I was 2019, uh, Sir Ken wrote that we don't live in a world as other creatures do. Mm. We create the worlds that we live in. What is the world of education that Linfield Learning Village is trying to create? I think that's a really interesting question and and even in our conversations this morning we have circled right back to the heart of who we were from the very beginning and Linfield Learning Village is creating a space where we can meet every child as an individual and move them forward from that point. Um, and that sounds really simple but it's really not. <laughs> Uh, it's an extremely complex thing, but ultimately, if we were to pursue that goal of um, embracing each child, um, celebrating their uniqueness, um, supporting their learning in a way that allows them to continue to be engaged as a lifelong learner throughout time, so that they they thrive, that, that this place is not the only place where learning happens, that they're, um, you know, that they thrive in the world beyond school, um, 
it's it's kind of the fundamental challenge I think to who we are and it, it does come to the heart of the wellbeing focus that we have as a school and what that looks like and what that means in terms of the way we teach the way we set up our spaces the way that we approach the relationships that we have with all members of our community and obviously our learners as the, as the heart um, I was going to say it's an interesting you know he talks about we, you know, human beings are creating, and I think the big one of the big differences for us is that we've invited our children into that creation. So we're not creating for them; we're co-creating with them. Um, and I think that that's a really important um, distinction. Uh, we have a role to play in that because we are experts in the curriculum, and we know that there are certain. Um, things that we need to meet and boxes that we need to tick. Um, but I think our real role is to sit underneath our kids and have them be the creators of the world that they are inhabiting and are going to go on inhabiting long after we've gone. Um, so one of the conversations we've been having recently is that um, we need to be creating now in such a way that this place outlasts us by a long time. Um, and that's really hard because currently it's driven by the people who are here in it. But, you know, what is it that we can do um, so that what we create here right now um, goes long into the future? So I think, you know, that's another... Imagine if, imagine if it outlasts by hundreds of years and changes the face of education. Did you want to add anything to that, Mark, in terms of... Uh what Linfield Learning Village is trying to, to create in the world of education? Mm. In the midst of culture being what it is and whatever a traditional approach to education is, we're simply asking the question, can we do it better? And there's a wealth of research out there uh, that we're just putting into practice. But what we're finding is that it's counter-cultural. So we're not the hippie school, it's not radical, but it is, uh, it is leaning towards a different slice of culture than people are typically used to. So, so when we say no school captains, a lot of people are outraged that we wouldn't give those kids that opportunity. But we're simply saying, well, is it as really good as you think it is? Is it really the opportunity? Um, all, the, all those things where we're saying, is there a better way? Um, uh, probably at the heart of the challenge is we're giving value to the student voice. So at the heart of it, that is also potentially countercultural, um, depending on your parenting style or your educational style or who you think you are as a, a teacher and a professional. Um, so it can be challenging. We're, we're definitely challenging the status quo. So one of the things I often say is we are making the future we're struggling to predict the future, so we're making it and creating it as we go, and it's different to the past. I really like that, challenging the status quo and, and asking, can we do it better? I'm just trying to give you some good sound bites. <laughs> <laughs> Nailing it. Um, I guess talking about then the village you're creating, can you tell us about a moment when you had an idea uh, an idea that was not what you might see in a school normally and, and you implemented the idea and it was more than you could have ever imagined it to be. 
<laughs> so there's so many. There are, I was going to say, there's like micro stories yeah. and then there's sort of the macro stories. I we guess, have to tell that. Instagram. We have to tell our Instagram story. The latest one. The latest one. Go ahead. Okay. So on last Thursday evening, Steph became aware of a meme Instagram site that two of our Year 11 students had created that was slanderous, libelous, defamatory, illegal to adults here at the village. Uh, so I guess we spent the evening bouncing ideas backwards and forwards. How do we tackle this? We came in the morning and we sat down and we strategized. How will we find out who is behind the, um, the, the site? And, and we danced around with all the traditional ideas. We get all of year nine and 10 and 11 in the hall. And, and Steph em- bursts into tears because she's so upset. <laughs> <laughs> and we embarrass them and we guilt them into owning up to who has created this illegal, defamatory, slanderous, libelous site. And, and when do we report it? And we'd taken screenshots and everything and we had all the lists. But effectively, our strategy was good in that we went straight to a person who we felt sees their identity and their value as being encapsulated in the school. And we simply asked them, uh, we were honest with them, we asked them who created it uh, because we really need to work through the current and potential problems from such a site. So we got the kids' names and as soon as we heard who it was, we were completely relieved because we knew that uh, whatever they were trying to achieve, their motivation would not have been malicious. And they had, would have had no idea that what they'd created had the potential to be illegal, slanderous, et cetera, et cetera. And then on interviewing them, they were completely mortified because actually they were attempting to do completely the opposite. And I suppose the reason that's a success story is because we still have emotional responses when things like that happen and our gut emotional responses, how could they? You know, we've worked so hard, you know, now they're breaking relationship, we're going to make them feel terrible. Um, but we've learned that we actually have to step away from that emotional response and really look at the potential solution. And Mark's right, any other school, and I was the one saying, I, we, we, maybe this is the moment where we do something we've never done and we sit them all down in the auditorium and make <laughs> them feel bad. Um, but it clearly wasn't, and that would have been a real mistake. Um so then the interesting part of the resolution was that they were really worried that the followers of their Instagram page would think that the three of us being the horrible people that we are made them shut it down and, you know, all these sorts of um, questions would be asked about uh, what happened and they'd have all these an- uh, questions to answer. So in that conversation, um, they came up with the solution which was to completely shift the focus of the page to be highlighting their relationships with the teachers at the school and getting kids to comment on things that they love about particular teachers. Um, So they've now completely shifted it so that it is an opportunity to celebrate the relationships they have with teachers here as something completely different to what you might have in a traditional school environment. Which is um, ironically what they, they were, were trying thinking to they do were doing, and they, they thought, but the, they had just not read the room. The sense of yeah. humour hadn't developed to that point where they could get away with that in that particular medium. But, yeah, that is definitely a success story. And I think for me another one would be... Um, so many people who visit us um, or new teachers who come in the door comment on how 
when they they read what our values are and what our vision is at the school, uh, they are blown away by the fact that they actually see it embodied in the way that we live, act, breathe here. Um, and I think for me that's a really important part of the success story because it's not superficial, it's not just about words, it's not just, um, you know, signs on a wall that say these are our values. It, it is actually palpable, it's actually something that people experience in visiting us here. Um, and that comes from that co-creation. Yeah. It comes from not rushing. It comes from consulting and, and using design thinking to keep on cycling through ideas to make sure we're solving the right problems. Um, so, uh, you know, that output that we see or that success story, um, which is the embodiment of what we value and therefore a culture that we create that everybody understands, um, yeah, it comes from the use of some really clear process, I think, and thinking which is what we want our kids to do, right? Because we want them to think deeply and we want them to solve the right problems. Mm. Is that, Lou, something that happened uh, with the Year 12s who just finished? That was going to be another one of my success, success stories, stories, yeah, because yeah. what we really wanted to do with um, our first HSC cohort is to rewrite the success criteria because it is not something that, any of us believe in, you know, going back to the high stakes testing example earlier, that that a student's success at school can be defined by a number, um, particularly a number that matters for about five minutes in their life, but takes so much of their emotional, mental energy um, and health often away. And so, you know, for us, we, our first year, uh, year 12 cohort um, had only spent uh, two years, three years or less with us, started with us in year 10, and um, had therefore spent the majority of their educational experience elsewhere. Um, I guess if we were really honest, they came to us as a very small group of quite broken um, young people um, who had had quite negative experiences, uh, quite traumatic experiences at other schools, some of them complete school refusers. And um, I think... For me, the story of one of those people who was a complete school refuser, um, you know, ultimately ending up with, although, you know, the result doesn't matter, but, you know, was completely um, able to succeed in not only completing her HSC, but coming forth in the state in one of the subjects, being able to embrace her real passions around writing and um, her incredible, you know, brain and intelligence that um, allowed her to get a high distinction, one of only two in the state for her personal interest project uh, that will now be published as a research paper. You know, I mean... And I think, yeah. you know, that Incredible. that's, you know, sticking with that imagine if theme, imagine if every child had their own success criteria. Mm. Um, so if I think about that same cohort and another completely different um, young woman who whose success criteria was simply to be able to finish year 12. Um, and so what do we put in place to enable that to happen, mm -hmm. um, you know, amidst an incredibly complex um, situation and lots of factors? You know, what can we change? What can we do? What can we move, shift, create 
that allows her to meet her success criteria. Um, so, and that comes back to where we started, doesn't it, really, in that you know, we want to meet kids where they are right now and move them forward to where they want to be, whatever that looks like. Um, yeah, mm. so do you want to add to that? I was thinking another of our um, remarkable wins is the way we live out our values. So the three of us have a shared office. There's no principal's office. In fact, none of our people have their own office, apart from maybe our GA, our general assistant. <laughs> he's, he's that important. <laughs> uh, but that collaborative approach really allows us to be creative. And that, I, I think that's the single thing. Like When we're employing teachers, we don't really want to employ teachers. We want to employ creatives. That's what we want to pay them for. We want to be creative as well. And I think the way that we work which mirrors the way our teachers work and our students learn, is hugely collaborative creativity. So when we're trying to frame that creativity, we've put frames around it. Last year was the year of... The storyteller. And then this year was the year of the maker. And I remember the meeting that we had with a few other people where we bounced off the ideas and we thought, we have these wonderful maker spaces. There's probably no other school that has them. What are we doing with them? And you've always walked past them and thrown up your hands and gone, why aren't teachers using them? Why isn't maths taught in here? Why are they such a mess? Why aren't we making more of it? So here we are. This year, we're the year of the maker, and it's huge. We've got kids learning by doing left, right and centre. There's an archaeological dig in one of them. Um, And I think that actually that annual theme, which sort of was born slowly, because I think our first year was the year of the book, but we sort of only decided that halfway through the year. Um, I think that's another big win because it's a way of connecting every student in the school. Um, And we've now sort of brought that down to the next level and have a theme each term which connects everybody in the school. So it doesn't matter what grade you're in, doesn't matter you know what subject you're working in, um, you've got a connection to a much bigger conceptual idea, um, which I think then sort of unites your village around a shared point of learning. What does it mean to unearth? So that's this term. What are we unearthing? Are we unearthing bones in an archaeological dig or are we unearthing something in ourselves that we didn't know existed or are we unearthing new ways of doing or being or making? So I think that they have been a really significant piece. Um, They've allowed um, kindergarten teachers to see what's going on in year 9 and 10 and to look for connections and to say, oh my goodness, that's awesome. We can actually look at a really vertical approach to that transdisciplinary thinking and learning. So I guess I've just touched on a couple of other massive things Mm. which are part of the model Um, and that would be the vertical nature of the way we group children and the transdisciplinary thinking and mindset around the way we group or don't group Mm. subjects. And that broader vision around learning which is that we learn to change the world. Mm. So um, those connecting themes that Lou's talking about um, are all based on hairy audacious problems that don't have one solution that can't be solved by one discipline that need collaboration and need um, you know a a, a huge effort over time to be able to shift and these are the the problems these are the challenges that our young people will be facing in this world so if, if they're not taught how to manage them in school then you know what hope is there for our world it's it's fundamentally that big you know, mm. what we are doing and what 
what we believe in in terms of shifting um, the educational experience for young people because it will change the world. Because those wins, vertical and transdisciplinary learning, they are countercultural. Yes, yes. Most other schools teach the syllabus subject by subject, not all the time, some do projects, but for the majority of thinking, a child is in a particular year group based on their age. And that's it. As Sir Ken would say, based on their date of manufacture. Yeah. Yeah. That's the the only time. That's right. (laughs) Well, just when we were just thinking about that, the other thing I think that has been significant and is still, like we still haven't nailed this, which shows how iterative our journey is, is the festival of failure. So, Mm. you know, we've talked a lot about unlearning. We've talked a lot about being um, comfortable in the discomfort. We've talked about... um, celebrating spectacular failure we really need to do that because we're not going to solve wicked problems if we're not prepared to fail spectacularly multiple times on the way to finding the solution for the wicked problem Mm. Um, so giving our children space and time and our educators space and time and permission and safety to fail over and over and over again and see that as a critical part of the process um, in order to get where we need to be, I think is is also huge and incredibly countercultural. Mm. So that I think that's a really hard when you talk one. about high stakes testing, yeah. embracing failure is the polar opposite yeah. of that thinking. Yeah. Um, but how refreshing for somebody who yeah. who might find that I guess what I would call a sausage factory way of thinking about learning mm-hmm. um, that there is only one way and only one end point when in fact there's not mm. at all. Um, well, we would we would choose to celebrate the child that is the bottom fourth in the state, mm-hmm. just as much as the top mm-hmm. fourth, absolutely, um, for what they bring and for how they're growing and for who they are. So, um, and that's kind of cultural as well mm-hmm. in schools sometimes to celebrate the kid that's coming last. Mm-hmm. I guess speaking of of little wins and celebrations from your experience in the in the past uh, three years coming into the fourth year of the school. Are there any, um, in terms of the model that you just spoke about, in terms of verticality and uh, transdisciplinary learning, has that? Have you had any huge successes uh, in the model using those? I think that um, we certainly have, <laughs> and I think that was really evidenced for us um, recently in our, I guess, very deep self-reflection. Um, assisted by John Hattie's investigation report into our school um, where he and Tim O'Leary looked really closely at how those things were impacting the the outcomes for our students, not only academically but in terms of their wellbeing, um, in terms of our staff's satisfaction and our parents' satisfaction. Um, And and found that we were winning on all of those fronts. Um, Certainly the data around the sense of belonging that our students feel that they have at this school was uh, was literally the opposite of of broader state-level data, which has a very strong downward trajectory, whereas ours was continuing to increase throughout a a child's secondary experience and throughout their educational experience. Um, and that's fundamental, you know, if, if we know from, from so much research that that sense of belonging at school is key 
to all other aspects of their learning experience. Um, so I think that comes from the fact that we do prioritise relationships, that younger and older students learn together, that we um, we allow students to grow and develop within their, their social context, but also give them a voice to be able to speak up when they're speaking to adults, when, when they have other people in the space um, that are supporting their learning, that they are brave and tenacious and uh, able to articulate their questioning, their curiosity, um, and to explore that in a really safe space. Um, I mean, I think, um, you know, there's lots of really little things, or they seem little, that have a really big impact. So um, first names, for example, um, the fact that we are all known by our first names, regardless of whether we're four years old or 70 years old. Um, the the non-mandatory uniform policy or the multi-uniform which allows the children to choose um, what they learn best in. Um, so I think that they seem quite little mm. um, but they actually all feed into this thing that's big and that is about the belonging piece and it is about the feeling that this is a village. Um, we've got a new student actually who went home I think day three this story kind of went round the traps and then came back to me, who was trying to articulate how she had felt about her first or second day at school and ultimately got to the phrase, it just doesn't feel like a school, it feels like a, well, a village. I was like, okay, <laughs> yay. Um, so, so I think, and I, I mean, I, we've heard that before, we've heard that from one of our last year's year 12s who articulated it like family she said it feels like family um i think when we were brainstorming the imagine ifs one of them was imagine if kids ran in as quickly in the morning as they run out in the afternoon and i would say ours run in quicker mm. than they leave it's sometimes hard to get them out <laughs> of the classroom um, so all of those are little indications of the fact that we're doing something right um, and that does not mean at all that we have a silver bullet or we have all the answers. In fact, it means there's, there's probably more things we don't know than, than we do know. Um, but I think as long as we can hold on to the gut that tells us, no, no, this isn't, this isn't how we do it or this isn't right, it doesn't sit well with me, um, this, this decision is making me uncomfortable, as long as we continue to trust that... Um, and grow that in everybody who becomes part of the village, then it will become that self-sustaining hmm. ecological entity that we want it to be. Or, or even how can we do it better? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. We, we've spoken a lot about the school uh, and what the school's doing and the idea of imagine if we could uh, make a school that, that cares for the, the students over over anything else uh, that has the students running into classes as quickly as they run away. Um, I guess my question now is off the school, but still part of it, if you could write your own curriculum and didn't have constraints, um, what, would, what would you add that currently maybe you haven't been able to, to bring in because of those those outside constraints? Mm. I think that's really an interesting question because one of the myths out there about our school is that we don't teach mm -hmm. the curriculum. 
but we do and that's kind of the floor <laughs> mm. and we talk about you know high ceilings wide walls and that's the the basis for what we do is we tick that box because it needs to be ticked if we're going to be part of a system but there is so much flexibility beyond that if we were if i were to rewrite the curriculum i'm probably tapping into what Lou might say as well there'd be a whole lot more play in there because play is such an important part of learning on so many levels and not just for young children um, for adults as well you know how do we play as yeah. adults play to learn um, play to break things play to Reggio say play is the work of the child but mm. I would say play is is a necessary part of everybody's work um, and I guess the maker year is is helping us to embrace that idea that it's through play and playing with possibilities, playing with words, playing with ideas, playing with problems that we really learn how to think and do and um, solve things differently. So yes, play. I, I don't know, I've always had this picture of what if I just filled a room with books and interesting objects and um, curious things and just let children dig and shuffle until they found something that really spoke to them and then built their curriculum around that because I think educators can do that if they're not frightened at having to tick boxes because this is year one or year five or year seven. Mm. Um, I'm quite confident that that would work. But I think the biggest challenge is the misconception that what kids learn in year seven they will carry through. So there's an an overemphasis on the value of the content in the curriculum. So if I had a chance to rewrite it, I would have to write in uh, the opportunity for a much more dynamic curriculum. And I guess what we try and add on to the curriculum is all the things that you struggle to unpack from a curriculum document, such as how to think, ways to think, how to learn how to think, how to think different, how to know what you're thinking. So. Um, I guess those things are much harder to quantify and much more subjective, but that's nonetheless uh, what the future requires. Kids who can think for themselves, teach themselves. Like we, we really need to, we want to work ourselves out of a job as leaders of the school, but every teacher loses their job at the end of year 13. Kids are, you know, chucked off into another world of university or not, or work. and and. The ability to teach yourself is so important. And I think we would add to that that the learning characteristics that we have at Linfield Learning Village are fundamental to any um, learning experience. In fact, more important definitely than the curriculum. And uh, so they are about being creative, being collaborative, being empathic, being self-aware um, and, and being resilient. So all the things that we've already talked about are alluded to. You know, if, if we are able to master those things and self-assess ourselves as, as leaders, as teachers, as well as students against those learning characteristics, then they're the things that travel beyond the school gates. I mean, imagine if this was the school where the students did the teaching. Hmm. You know, imagine if this was a school where adults in our community queued up to attend courses that were run by our children. Mm. Um, because we have children who could do it right now. Um, so I feel like, you know, that tapping into their potential and 
it. So that's what would be released if we weren't tied to a curriculum. And we've had lots of conversations about who gets to decide what's in a curriculum, right? Mm. And because it's so contextual too. So who decides what's important to Australian children? Who decides what's important to British children? Who decides what's important to Italian children? It's all very contextual. Who gets to make that decision that something's in the curriculum or not in the curriculum? Because we're not talking about um, learning to do the basics. There would be no argument from anybody that we want our children to be literate and numerate. Of course we do. Um, but when we're talking about, you know, which bit of history we teach and which bit we don't, or, you know, when mm. is the right time to teach about an oxbow lake and when is the right time to teach about filtration systems, isn't it when the kids are interested or when they need it to solve a problem, isn't that the right time to teach that stuff? Mm. Um, well, you also alluded to the fact that we are now a global culture. Mm. So yeah. things we teach here in Australia could be transported and required for value in other places around the world. Mm. So our kids need to learn that as well. And I think, it, you know, for me, the imagine if in that space is, um, you know, imagine if, uh, I think New South Wales has one of the most complex, detailed... Uh, curriculum structures in the southern hemisphere if not the world so you know if we can look for the spaces the gaps the flexibility in it here then the sky's the limit really I remember visiting New Zealand and being blown away that their entire curriculum document was 17 pages long and you know the freedom that that revealed for for what was possible um, was incredible but you know regardless of of what uh, I guess structure sits behind it. The fundamentals of learning, I think, come back to the things that we've already talked about and those key imaginifs that we've we've raised today. Well, we've definitely discussed some uh, really exciting imaginifs, and we've only just dipped our toes into the imaginifs around Linfield Learning Village. Uh, so, thank you, Steph, Mark, and Lou, for your time, and uh, we'd love to have you back on the show. Uh, to, to further explore uh, how the world of Linfield Learning Village works on this pod podcast, Village Stories, Raising Education. So thank you. Linfield Learning Village is a school of the future. Within a flagship school building, the new educational model will fundamentally shift the way we think about school and will shape the education revolution over the next decade. Tune in for more village stories and to find out more, head to our website, linfieldlearningvillage.com.au.